Good afternoon and welcome to Midday. I'm Ashley Sterner, and today for Tom Hall. Earlier this month, four unidentified flying objects were identified in U.S. airspace. The first one of these is believed to have been a surveillance balloon deployed by the Chinese government. The other three items are believed to have come from private companies conducting research or recreational activities. In a press conference yesterday, President Biden clarified why we are seeing more aerial phenomena and how he plans to address the matter. I want to be clear. We don't have any evidence that there has been a sudden increase in the number of objects in the sky. We're now just seeing more of them partially because the steps we've taken to increase our radars, to narrow our radars. And we have to keep adapting our approach to uh, delaying, to dealing with these challenges. That's why I've directed my team to come back to me with sharper rules for how we will deal with these unidentified objects moving forward. If you thought that spy balloons were new, think again. These high-altitude monitoring tools have been in use since the 1950s and are not just used by the U.S., but also by governments and private companies around the world for surveillance and all sorts of other things. And there are a lot of them up there. Now that the U.S. has changed its parameters for scanning the skies, are we going to find more? Joining us now to discuss this is John Herman. He wrote an article for New York Magazine called Spy Balloons Are a Growth Industry and joins us today from Brooklyn, New York. John, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So what all is up there? <laughs> well, uh, I think I think the more we look for uh, uh, or the more the government looks for, the more they'll find. Um, among other things, there are hundreds of weather balloons launched around the world every single day. Uh, there are hobbyists, and and I don't mean to to suggest that we're we're talking about you know serious uh, 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 you know ballooning community enthusiasts. Elementary schools, uh, middle schools, regularly launching small uh, pico balloons made out of mylar filled with helium or hydrogen, up to tens of thousands of feet for you know class experiments for something for something to do to teach uh, lessons about you know uh, mass and 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 uh, and flight. Um, in addition, you've got uh, you know some of the the more secretive uh, military applications and government applications going on. We saw uh, with the the you know what we're calling now the Chinese spy balloon, um, uh, a foreign version of some of what uh, the United States has been working on too. Uh, very high altitude uh, surveillance platforms uh, that are basically blimps. And then we've got uh, United States private industry that's exploring all sorts of applications for uh, balloons that are, you know, probably a bit smaller than some of these surveillance uh, uh, government devices, but are, are, you know, quite a bit more sophisticated and, and quite a bit larger than these small hobby balloons that are basically like satellites with a few advantages. They, they can float in the same place for a very long time. They're much, much cheaper to launch or, or float, I guess would be the, the word. Um, they can provide higher resolution imagery for agricultural applications or for, you know, uh, watch, uh, you know, keeping track of supply chain uh, issues or for uh, mineral exploration. There are all sorts of applications for balloons. And, and you know, uh, it's it's it, the, the surprise here, I guess, is that the government was either not terribly aware that there are numerous uh, balloons kind of just drifting around at very high altitudes. Um, or that they don't have the tools or didn't have the tools to to kind of track, uh, identify, and, and then engage with them without wasting a $400,000 missile. When I hear the word balloon, my brain conjures up an image of the things we had at birthday parties as kids. Big, spherical, round, 
are surveillance balloons shaped like this, or do they come in all sorts of other shapes too? Most of the very high altitude balloons um, that that people are launching are very tall and wispy. They sort of look like deep sea creatures. Um, they they also look sort of loose. They, they're not inflated or stretched. They're made out of rigid material, um, and, they, and they you know kind of they would be strange looking. Uh, f- uh, you know, from an aviator's point of view, um, or from any point of view. Uh, although from the ground, you know, they would be basically invisible. Although some of the cheaper Pico balloons that hobbyists are using and that schools are using are indeed repurposed party balloons. Um, you know, they're launching very small payloads uh, of a few grams to sort of see what happens or, or the bowl. Um, weather balloons are, you know, if, as long as they're not carrying more than six or 12 pounds, depending uh, uh, in their payload, they don't have to be um, declared to to the FAA. There doesn't have to be a, a notice to airmen, um, uh, and they're sort of floating up there with a variety of little shapes. Um, but yeah, they're they're not they're not balloons in the in in the like you know uh, red and blue and green party sense. But they are you know they're balloons. <laughs> How do they float? They are just balloons. How do they float? What's what uh, mechanism do they use to stay aloft? In that sense, they they truly are familiar. They typically will the smaller ones. The hobbyist balloons will just use sometimes is these days. And I'm sorry, uh, um, we we broke hydrogen. up there. Um, we broke up there for a second. I missed the beginning of what um, you said. Um, is hydrogen helium? Is that what what keeps them up? Uh, helium typically is what small balloons will use. Uh, other balloons will use hydrogen. As for ultra high altitude applications, um, that's that's sort of beyond my pay grade. But the but regular hobbyists are using helium to launch balloons uh, forty thousand feet in the air with with no problem. What goes up must come down. How long do they stay up there? Uh, some for a few hours. Uh, some some for quite a bit longer. Uh, the uh, there's some suspicion that uh, one of the objects that was downed by an F-22 um, above Canada's Yukon Territory was a balloon launched by the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade. Um, they lost track of a balloon that had been airborne for 124 days. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, you know, they're wondering if maybe that's not a coincidence. Um, so, you know, depending on the, your level of seriousness, you can send those things up for quite a long time. And, and the companies that are marketing these uh, for, for use in, in various industries, uh, they're marketing much larger platforms. They're talking about, you know, months and months of, of, of time in the air in order to provide basically, you know, surveillance um, to, to provide that, that sky high view. Um, so there's, these are pretty capable these are pretty capable devices and pretty capable machines. Um, it, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's a testament, it's a testament to, to, um, uh, you know, uh, not overcomplicating things uh, that you can still just float a balloon up in the air and get quite a bit done. And again, what goes up must come down. You said that like hundreds of balloons of this sort are launched every day. Where are they all coming down? Uh Typically within, you know, 10, 20, uh, 50 miles of, of where they're launched. The, uh, most of these devices are going to be tracked by the people launching them. Um, a great deal are not going to be recovered, but a great deal will be recovered. Um, in the case of, of more ambitious balloons, like the one launched by by uh, the, the Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade, um, you know, you kind of don't know what's going to happen when you are circumnavigating a uh, multiple times with your hobby balloon, you, you kind of suspect that that it will eventually fail. Something will happen, and you will permanently lose it. 
Uh, or they get shot down by an F-22. What kind of data can these balloons um, pick up? Uh, and is are there things that uh, that balloons are better at surveilling than perhaps satellites? They're they're doing typical weather sensing tasks, but they're you know providing data that that might assist with with prediction. Uh, so when you pick up your phone and, and check the weather for the day, you are kind of tapping into this this large informal weather balloon network. The firms that are that are uh, marketing and selling high altitude balloon platforms um, across various industries will tell you that they are able to um, you know incorporate infrared sensors uh, uh, which might help with tracking supply chains um, uh, from the air uh, they uh, can carry radar devices um, they can perform very high altitude uh, I'm sorry very high resolution photography uh higher resolution or at least higher resolution at a lower cost than uh commercial satellites uh they're they're you can kind of think of them as as something that is both conceptually and also literally between you know a plane or a drone and a satellite uh and and think about the various types of surveillance that that those devices make possible those um and and then just uh you know place that uh capability in the stratosphere rather than you know in the in the uh, thirty two thousand feet or in space, the stratosphere is pretty high. Um, what are conditions like up there? Oh, very cold um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and often very windy. Um, you know, if you if you were uh, uh, if you took off your your helmet in the stratosphere, you wouldn't last very long at all. Um, one uh, application for high altitude balloons. Uh, that that was quite memorable is uh, in 2012 with sponsorship from Red Bull. Um, Felix Baumgartner uh, jumped from a, a high altitude balloon uh, for the highest skydive uh, ever recorded. And when he did it, he was wearing something that looked identical to a spacesuit, and that's what he needed to survive. Because it's so cold and windy, and I would assume so little uh, breathable oxygen up there, you are you are only technically not in space. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the rules that govern what can go up, uh, it, not being in space. Um, if I decided to launch a balloon into the stratosphere, would anyone be able to stop me? Would I get? Could I conceivably get in trouble? As long as your payload was fairly small. Um, uh, and if, if you if you follow the rules by the book, that that ends up being about twelve pounds, which you know could be a bit of hardware. You can just launch one. It might cost you a couple hundred dollars, but um, no, at, at that level, uh, you can just launch a balloon, and that would be sort of an interesting uh, uh, you know contrast between the response to to these uh, UFOs or UAPs as they were characterized uh, by by NORAD and and you know what what was actually up there in the sky there is some concern among hobbyists now that um regulators could demand uh, a notice to airmen for much smaller devices that are currently now uh uh you know just available to anyone um but you know no word on that yet you mentioned in your article um that there is a company working to uh do something like space tourism via balloon, sending tourists into the stratosphere via balloon. Uh, what what is that all about? 
Uh, and it sounds like uh, the uh, the balloons uh, have gotten in the way of our conversation uh, with John Herman, who writes for New York Magazine. Uh, we've been delighted to have John with us today to talk about unidentified aerial phenomena and those that we have been able to identify as surveillance balloons or other sorts of balloons up in the sky. John Herman, again, writes for New York Magazine. This is 88.1 WYPR. You're listening to Midday. And now, we take a look at artificial intelligence. There once was a radio show on AI and how it might grow. The guest was quite bright and explained with delight how machines could be made to grow. That little limerick predicting the next segment of Midday is not one that I wrote. It was composed by a generative AI computer program called ChatGPT, which can write poetry and answer questions like a human would, allegedly. Here to discuss the potential and pitfalls of this technology is Tinglong Dai, professor of operations management at Johns Hopkins University's business school. Uh, Professor Dai, I'm hoping that you can fulfill ChatGPT's prophecy and bring a little bit of delight to this uh, look at AI. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, So we want to focus on generative artificial intelligence in this segment, generative AI. Um, What is it and how does it work? Well, if generative AI does not sound sound familiar to you, uh, you must have heard about ChatGPT. I drive to work. I hear the uh, NPR every day. Uh, And we are in love with ChatGPT, right? Which is type of generative AI. So what it does is that it generates essays, responses. Sometimes it can even generate arts or videos. Uh, so it's di- different from a traditional kind of AI, which is try to predict or classify things. It generates new materials based on user inputs. Where does ChatGPT get the information it uses to answer questions? Well, ChatGPT is a large language model. It's trained on the data from the internet. So you can think of this ChatGPT is someone does tons of internet surfing, right? So we, each, of, each one of us spends hours surfing the internet, whereas ChatGPT has spent trillions of hours, you know, pretty much absorbing from everything that is open on the internet and it tries to figure out uh, human language. So the way it works is, is that, you know, it pops out a word at a time, you know, it pops up a word, then try to figure out what the next word should be. Kind of like if you're a parent, you have a nine-year-old at home, who just learned to write essays, you watch them write letter by letter, word by word. Uh, that's pretty much how ChatGPT works. So it's got all of the data at the internet at its fingertips, or, or does it have just some of it? Has has some stuff been fired, walled off from it, or or does it just like sort of suck in everything for to learn how to how how to write its its words? It's it's not exactly everything, but it's a sizable proportion of the data, you know, the essays, things posted on Reddit, Wikipedia. So those are some of the core uh, parts of uh, you know its, its training data set. Uh, it's it, yeah, so so that also means that it's, it's very familiar with what's on the internet, but not necessarily very good at what's not on the internet. Mm-hmm. So you really just capture a very small proportion of civilization we have a credit. Uh, but it's fair to say that it is it can be, can be thought of as an internet addict. 
Uh, when ChatGPT first uh, became public, there were worries in academia that students could use it to write their papers. Uh, but it's not really smart enough to do that. I mean, not if professors are actually reading those papers, right? Uh, true, true. So it's, it's, if you try to use ChatGPT to write um, anything that is technical, um, you will find that first of all, it makes tons of mistakes, and you know, makes up stuff. It gives you references that doesn't that do not exist. So I got emails when people ask me about the book I have never written. Uh, so <laughs> it makes a lot of mistakes, and uh, so it certainly that cannot. Um, if you try to really look at it carefully. Uh, you'll be very disappointed. But but the way I think about ChatGPT is that reason we love it, right? So this is Valentine's week. Uh, the reason we love it is really because it's cute but not dangerous. Uh, so right now we trust the ChatGPT probably fifty six percent of the time. So a serious student will never use it to write an essay, right? Uh, but so it's not dangerous. What was really dangerous is when ChatGPT gets better data sets, better user feedback such that you can trust it 90% of the time. And for the 10% of the time, when it actually generates nonsense, you, can, you do not even realize it. So, so that's the worry that while it may not be uh, clever enough to write papers now that are going to fool anyone who reads them, that as it develops, as it pulls in more data and information and evolves, it may become that clever. Exactly, exactly. So right now, it's like a nine-year-old child who has written all the books from the public library and then started writing essays. You just got really amazed by the fact that they're capable of writing. Uh, you don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to the contents or the consequences of the writing. But, you know, as they became older, you know, become teenagers, you, you want to carefully. So that's the moment that you start worrying about as parents, right? So is AI actually getting significantly more intelligent as it progresses? Not necessarily. I was saying that the, the, I mean, the ChatGPT is fundamentally a new network model. This is a methodology that has been there for a few years. Uh, it's um, definitely better than uh, GPT-2 or GPT-1 that was released about OpenAI before. Uh, but in terms of its, uh, its way it works, it's basically the methodology uh, researchers have become really familiar for quite a while. It's just that to the general public, it is something that we have never seen before. So where is this technology going? What is it? What could it do in the future? Well, I, I think the technology uh, in the future, we have already seen, got a little bit of preview from the new uh, Bing search, so uh, from Microsoft. Uh, you know, people worry about that um, you know, GPT makes up random stuff. So now the Bing search starts adding footnotes, links, so that you can double check. Kind of like if you read a new story from NPR, they have links so that you can do fact checking. So I think that helps. So I think hopefully in the future it becomes more reliable and also is capable of doing more things. But really what excites me most is just the potential that we can utilize generative AI to change the way we learn as the way we create things. So, so just give me one example. Uh, ChatGPT may be really bad at a lot of things, but it's really good at programming. Uh, I would say that it's, it's a better computer programmer than most of our college students and most of graduate students. Uh, so thanks to ChatGPT, the most popular programming language might be English. Well, that, that should be surprise us because 
ChatGPT fundamentally is a computer, right? It, it is supposed to be better at its own native language, which is programming language, right? We, we talk about self-evolving um, computer systems. Could uh, ChatGPT write its own code and then rewrite its own code and become even cleverer um, on its own accord? You could, you could. I mean, uh, what you just described uh, is something related to the notion of um, reinforcement learning. So idea is that you do not necessarily have to tell uh, the computer what to do, just tell them what you try to achieve. And then they will try to uh, basically just to deliver that purpose, try to get closer and closer to that objective. All we need is just provide feedback to them from time to time. So theoretically, it's definitely possible. Uh, in fact, right now, if you look at the calls generated online, most of them are actually automatically generated. They're not written line by line, uh, letter by letter, certainly not the case. So it's, it's, it's very, very much likely, actually already feasible, it's just going to get better that for AI to create AI systems and also make AI systems better to deliver the purpose we assign to them. Are there any ethical considerations that we should be keeping in mind uh, as uh, we use uh, AI systems like ChatGPT and as the developers of these systems develop them? Yeah, the absolute. I mean, first of all, you have this intellectual property concerns, right? So, you know, if they just randomly generate something uh, based on something, uh, NPR recently published, uh, is that a violation of intellectual property? I guess it is, right? And uh, even if they have sources and uh, they, they do not necessarily obey the kind of honor code we have in, at universities or in our professions. So, that, so the other thing is that um, what ChatGPT tells us, and also browsing generative AI tells us, is something that sounds really um, close. I'm saying this is like very closed. Uh, it's not an open system, right? So you, you, if you go to Google, you type any questions, you have a, you have a thousands of links, and you're probably going to look at a 10 or 20 links before deciding which one to open. Whereas with generative AI, you are generated, you're giving very limited number of answers. Uh, so you do not necessarily have a chance to reflect on how trustworthy they are. So that, that actually of my immediate concern after seeing ChatGPT become popular was that so ChatGPT along with other tools such as DALI2 can easily become tool for massive amount of misinformation. And uh, because right now, you know, we, we talk about election uh, worries talk about uh, you know manipulation of democracy a lot of them are actually from foreign countries so with ChatGPT and with DALI2 with a lot of other generative AI tools that has really immediately uh, bridges the language and communication gaps but suddenly overnight all you need is just to tell them what to do and the, just generate materials at, at the cost of nearly zero so I, I fear that that could also become uh, become a major concern to democracy. It may not be something we immediately expect. Well, as this technology develops and becomes more and more popular and more and more used, these are concerns that we will have to keep in mind. Professor Tinglong Dai teaches at the Carey School of Business at Johns Hopkins. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Coming up here on Your Public Radio, we'll talk with science writer Catherine Hulick about human-robot interaction, HRI. 
There are robot teachers and robot hospital aides. But can robots laugh and talk with you like a real friend? Would that be a good idea? I'm Ashley Sterner, sitting in for Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is your public radio, 88.1 WIPR. I'm Al Waller. I'm Catherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WIPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back to Midday. I'm Ashley Sterner, sitting in for Tom Hall. Quick look ahead to Monday's edition of Midday, where the guest host gets upgraded from me to former WBAL investigative reporter Jane Miller. Jane will be here for an investigation into the future of work. She'll talk with Delegate Shelley Hedelman about her proposed four-day workweek legislation and hear from a local university that created a task force to plan for the needs of their future staff and faculty. Also, as Governor Westmore continues to focus on filling state job vacancies, a local union leader will talk with Jane about making state jobs and state work more appealing. That's Monday at noon on Midday here on Your Public Radio. If you are just joining us today, we are talking about tech on Midday today, and now we're going to focus on human-robot interaction, HRI. Different types of robots have become integral to our lives. Roombas, self-driving cars, talking toys, maybe even Megan. But just how far will robots go to become friends, friends that will laugh and hug and cry with us? Joining us for a closer look is Catherine Hewlett, a science writer for Science News Explorers, who wrote the article, Can a Robot Ever Become Your Friend? She's also the author of the children's book, Welcome to the Future, Robot Friends, Fusion Energy, Pet Dinosaurs, and more, and joins us from Hopkinton, Massachusetts. Catherine, thanks for being here on Midday. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a hypothetical you posed in the article's title. Mm -hmm. Can a robot become your friend? Um, I think that not right now, but in the future, yes. Um, I think that right now, the best relationship you can have with a robot is somewhere in between like the relationship you have with your toaster and the relationship you have with your pet. Um, So it's maybe something new and different, but it's not quite a friendship. Well, I have a very good relationship with my toaster, personally. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess this all comes down to how intelligent artificial cal- intelligence can be or how intelligent right. it can seem. And uh, exactly, we do yeah. have robots that can kind of act like a friend, right? Yeah. And you just finished talking about ChatGPT. And honestly, I think that, you know, friendly robots are just ChatGPT with a body. I mean, that ChatGPT that people are all excited about now is, you know, the best we can do in terms of having a robot talk to you and seem friend-like in the way it talks to you. Of course, this does not represent anything actually going on inside the computer mind. Um, It's not a brain. It works in a very different way than our brains do. Um, But it can kind of convince people that it has that kind of inner life. So that's a little tricky. It causes some tricky situations, I think. Are there ethical challenges of making machines that are convincing? Yes, uh, there definitely are. I mean, this is an area I'm super interested in. Um, 
I mean, there are a lot of good reasons to do it because having robots that can talk to you like a person can just make so many parts of our lives so much easier. But of course, you know, you want that to be very clear. You don't want to trick people. You know, like a lot of the concerns around ChatGPT are with with cheating. You know, people who use it need to use it openly. They need to be clear about that because, you know, people don't want to think, um, you don't want to misrepresent something that a machine wrote as your own. Uh, and it's the same goes for um, robots that are having relationships in other ways. Like you, if you're having a, ro a robot that's your kid's tutor or teacher, you know, you don't want that kid to think that the robot is more than it actually is. You want them to know that it's a machine and know that, you know, it can't really care for them in the same way that a human caretaker could. But people really like to fool themselves to believe that relationships yes. are more than they actually are. And I'm talking about human-human relationships as well as human-robot yeah. relationships. We like to it's convince true. ourselves things are, are more than they, they, they appear. Uh, mm -hmm people will want these robot relationships to be relationships. Is there something, mm -hmm. ethically speaking, we should be doing to make sure that robots uh, and, interrupt us and make sure we know it's not real? I mean, I don't, you know, honestly, I think that we need to make room for a new type of relationship. And I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. Like, you know, a lot of people treat their Roomba almost like a pet. Um, and there's, I, I wrote about in my article, how people have held funerals for Aibo robot dogs. Um, and I think that's okay. Like, I think it's, we, we've always cared about things that aren't alive. I mean, a lot of people love their cars, you know, and really feel sad when they have to <laughs> get rid of it. Um, you know, it's like, we've always felt this way about things that can't feel back for us. So it's in a way, robots aren't really that different. You know, this is a normal thing. It's part of being human to like, kind of personify the things around us and care about them and, you know, give them <laughs> inner lives that they don't really have. You know, we talk to things all the time that we know can't talk back to us. So I don't see that that's really a problem a lot of the time. I mean, I guess the problem becomes when the robot is talking back and is saying things and, and might be you, who's telling it what to say, you know, where its value is coming from. And that is an important question. Um, right. With, of course, artificial intelligence, uh, robots can learn from the interactions they have with people and, and adapt uh, mm -hmm. to, to portray something more, I guess, what people want. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the most interesting things about ChatGPT is how much work OpenAI open AI put into getting it to be safe. Like, and they did that through human feedback. They did that through having people check its responses and kind of look at two responses next to each other and decide which one, uh, you know, is better or am I more comfortable with. Um, and there are some ethical concerns in that because some of the people they hired to do this had to look at some pretty awful content to say, you know, no, never say anything like that. Um, but yeah, that's something they've really focused on. And that's really important that we need to make sure that um, these robots do have value systems. But again, whose values are they? Like how many, who's getting a say and what robots are going to be able to talk about and aren't going to be able to talk about. And what happens if the people who are making those decisions are unethical about the decisions they're making? Exactly. Or even if they're not just unethical, but only representative of a certain segment of the population. Like what if they're not a diverse group? You know, are they going to is that going to cause problems? Well, and that's uh, the whole problem in part by with ChatGPT, that it's pulling in stuff yes. from the internet, but it's only pulling what's in the internet. And that is in <laughs> its own uh, case uh, problems with diversity right there. Yes. And it's not directly pulling from the internet, by the way. Its cutoff date was in 2021. So it has internet content that it you know learned from, um, but it's not actually pulling live information. So there's so many things it doesn't even know about yet. Yes, there are. <laughs> why, why do we even want friendly robots? Is this just something from watching too much science fiction as kids? I mean, I, 
I've always wanted a friendly robot. I mean, maybe <laughs> yes. I mean, in science fiction, it's just such a, and I think this is goes far much farther back in human history. I mean, there have been stories of you know human like like golems and things for, you know, as long as we've been writing stories. I think uh, I just the idea that we could like bestow life onto something that didn't have life, that we could bestow in, intelligence or or some of ourselves onto these onto these machines. I think it's just fascinating um, that we could kind of build and create life uh, that's not biological in origin. So, I mean, that's, it's just a fascinating thing. And I think it it's, um, I mean, it goes beyond science and technology. It goes into the realm of like art and, and that kind of thing. Ethical concerns of artistic robots too. Yes, that too. Yes. So we can make robots act friendly. When mm-hmm. does, or does acting friendly ever become being friendly? Can, can this sort of intelligence actually learn at some point to love us? I think it could. And I mean, I'm not, uh, not everyone agrees with me. And there, when I talk to AI experts, and I, what, I guess the point at which I would say it can love you back is the point at which it has consciousness or some sort of inner life, whatever that might mean for a machine. Uh, and uniformly, all the experts I talk to say we are not there yet, not even close. And they mostly think that this is going to be like, tens to even hundreds of years in the future. And so, you know, they know better than me. So I also (laughs) tend to, you know, err on the side of caution and say this is still a very, very long way away because there are just so many things we don't understand about how our own consciousness works. And there are just, you know, there's so much more complexity that would need to exist in the computer to get even close to that. Um, So it's not something I think will happen anytime soon, but you know, we could always be surprised. And then there's also a question out there, like, will we know it when it happens? Will we know it when we see it? Uh, so these are important questions. And I think there's some very smart people working on them. Um, and I do believe that it's very clear we're not there yet, but I do think that we will get there. I really do. Maybe tens of or hundreds of years in the future. Yes. <laughs> Where are we going yeah. in the very near term? What are What can we expect soon? Yeah, in the very near term, I mean, we can expect robots that talk like ChatGPT, that that sound a lot more human than they ever have before. And I know that ChatGPT gets a lot of hate because it's making a lot of mistakes and doing these things. But honestly, it's really, really good. It's so much better than what we've had before. I mean, I've been writing about this stuff for like 15 years. And I mean, I had to change a sentence in my Can a Robot Ever Become Your Friend story when ChatGPT came out because I was like, well, actually, they are conversing with people in a way that feels natural. In my original version of the story, I'd said they're not. And it's like now they kind of are. So, I mean, this is, to me, I mean, it's super exciting that this kind of generative AI can do what it does. And I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to see more um, robots in the home that, you know, you can kind of, you know, you're, you're, you know, your systems when you try to tell your phone or whatever you have to do something for you and it never really understands, they're going to start to understand you. They're going to start to be able to talk back in a way that feels natural. Maybe those automatic phone systems won't be as frustrating as they are right now. (laughs) (laughs) So we're just going to have better experiences with technology that feel more natural, I think. What a time to be alive or Mm -hmm. a a robot, as the case may be. (laughs) Uh, Catherine Hewlett is a science writer for Science News Explorers and wrote the article, Can a Robot Ever Become Your Friend? Also author of the children's book, Welcome to the Future, Robot Friends, Fusion Energy, Pet Dinosaurs, and more. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up next, our theater critic Judy Rustic shares her review of Ghost Writer at Rep Stage in Howard County. I'm Ashley Cerner, in for Tom Hall. Stay with us.
You're listening to your NPR news station, 881 WYPR.